All right, grab your Bibles if you would and turn to 1 Thess 5. We are near the end of this letter and we are looking specifically at what it means to excel still more in our relationship with Jesus. This is part three in excelling on our relationship with Jesus. So far, it's been excelling in joy, rejoicing always, excelling in prayer, pray without ceasing, and now this will be part three. So with our scriptures in hand, uh, let's declare together what we believe about God, what we believe about his word and ourselves. This is God's word, his heart revealed. I humbly declare his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I will not lean on my own understanding, but incline my heart now to receive his word so that I may excel still more in filling the earth with his glory by walking in his truth and loving all people as he has loved me. So filling the earth with his glory by rejoicing always, filling the earth with his glory by praying without stopping and now filling the earth with his glory, verse 18, this way. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, very specifically, if this morning you have placed faith in Jesus, you have been born again, you're a child of God, then his will for you, your Father's will for you is that you would glorify him, fill the earth with his glory by giving thanks in everything. This actually, one of the major truths that changed my life. That may, may seem weird to you, but, but there was a week in my life where God used a, a particular speaker to communicate two truths that changed the trajectory of my life. First, the Jesus who walked the pages of this New Testament is alive and living in you and the person of the Holy Spirit wants to live his life through you. That changed my life. Second, the language of our faith is thankfulness in everything. Now, I've had people say to me, even here at the chapel, well, you know, it does say in everything give thanks, but it doesn't say for everything give thanks, which is true or false. (laughs) Uh, In everything give thanks. Does it say for everything give thanks? No, it doesn't say for everything give thanks, unless, of course, you're reading from Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, it says, always giving thanks for all things. So it actually is the will of God that you would give thanks for all things and in all things. To do so, to really do so would be an act of faith in God. Now, we said that about rejoice always. Rejoicing always is an act of faith. And I had somebody ask me this week, "Um, are you just going to do the rejoice always sermon again? Because really, what's the difference between rejoice always and in everything give thanks? Well, 
what is similar is that they're both acts of faith. But here's what's different. Rejoicing always is an umbrella, if you will, by which we would engage all of life. In everything, I'm going to rejoice. But I want you to think about the countless times someone has prepared something for you, put it on a plate, stepped up to the table over your shoulder and placed it in front of you. And when they placed it in front of you, your mama taught you to say, Thank huh? Thank you. Thank you. By the way, if you're at a restaurant, it's still good to tell them, thank you. You ever had something put in front of you that you went, ew. <laughs> I'm saying thank you on the outside, but I'm not saying thank you on the inside. Maybe you said it verbally, but you didn't really mean it. But I want to, what I want you to see is this. Giving thanks is a very specific response to very specific actions, circumstances, and events in our lives. It's as if God places something in your life, places it in front of you, and regardless of whether it, whatever it is, sashimi, thank you. Spinach, thank you. You see what I'm saying? That, that God places whatever on your plate. And for it, you say, thank you. And in it, you say, thank you. Now, you get me? That's an act of faith. Because God sometimes puts things on our plate that we don't want. What we want to do is go, uh, that's not what we ordered. Never told God that? That's really not what I ordered. Or uh, that's what I ordered. Just, that's not how I ordered it. I ordered a different type of spouse than that one. <laughs> Give thanks in all things for all things. And we can laugh about it, but then there's some really big moments where hard stuff gets put on our plate. And this was transformational in my life. I'll tell you a quick personal story is God put on my plate a family that I grew up in that was really not the family I would have ordered. Mom and dad divorced early. Then my mom remarried. I lived with my stepdad and her. And then he left multiple times, came back, left, came back, left, came back. And then as a teenager... She left, and I wasn't living with my mom, and I wasn't living with my dad, and my siblings were gone, and to, with genuinely no offense to my stepdad, it's just not what I, I was like, I was, it was me and my stepdad. And I can still remember the night where it's almost as if God put the plate in front of me, and I knew I had a, a decision to make. Not a polite decision, a decision of faith or a decision of what I thought. And it was really the first big moment in my life to say, thank you, God. Thank you for my family. 
It's not the one I wanted. It's not the one I would have ordered. But thank you. Jackie and I, as a married couple, our first real big moment to say thank you was when married three years, she found out she was pregnant and so excited, you know, in maternity clothes long before you need him, but you just want everybody to know you're pregnant. <laughs> and then she miscarried. And you could look back now and go, you had six kids. What was the big deal? Uh, the big deal was you had no idea what the future held. And, and there's all those questions of, will we be able to conceive again or will we ever be able to carry a child? And it was as if the Lord put a plate in front of us that said miscarriage and we had a moment to go, will we shake our fist at God or will we say, thank you? God's put some stuff in front of you, right? That you wouldn't have asked for, you didn't really want. And folks, it's what we believe about God and what we don't believe about God that determines what we say when we get served up something we don't really want or like. It's really where the true you, your true relationship gets revealed. When that is what you'd like to send back. But you don't have that much authority, do you? I mean, you try. You pitch a fit. And maybe you rebel. But the act of faith is thank you for it, Father, and thank you in it, Father. But what do we believe about God that gets us to that place where we, in everything and for everything, give thanks? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And in other words, it's the conviction there's more to what's on the plate than what it seems to me. So what do I believe? I want to simply share from the scriptures an overflow of my own story this morning. Two core convictions that have brought me to a place where not easily, but by faith, I can in everything and for everything give thanks. First, it's a confident assurance in the sovereign rule of God. See, when I give thanks in and for everything, I'm expressing confident assurance. See, it's what I believe about God and don't believe about God that determines what I give thanks for and what I don't give thanks for. When it comes to the will of God, I want you to see it this way. Oh, oh sorry. By sovereign rule of God, I mean our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. You, you capture that? It means that he has no authority to answer to. He is without restriction. He has ultimate say in everything at all times. He is sovereign. 
He's not absolutely sovereign because to be sovereign is to be absolutely sovereign. You can't be partially sovereign. If you're partially sovereign, you're not sovereign. You're want to be sovereign. God is in the heavens and he gets to do what we would like to do, whatever we please. Why don't we get to do whatever we please? Because we're not sovereign, because we're not God. It is his right for, because of who he is to do whatever he pleases. Now, as I was saying, I want us to see the will of God in this regard. There is the declared will of God. Now, what I mean by the declared will of God is what he has revealed in the scriptures. It's clear. It's not fuzzy. But it's a dotted line in which we are called to live. But the reality is, can you live outside the declared will of God? Yes, you can. And quite frankly, we regularly do. But... In contrast to the declared will of God, there is the sovereign rule of God. And they are not dotted lines at all. They are impenetrable walls. In other words, I can never live outside of the sovereign rule of God and nothing can enter my life that's not part of the sovereign rule of God. See what I'm saying? So there is the declared will that I choose to live in or I choose to live outside of, but then there is the sovereign will. Let me, this is more than a theological truth. The sovereignty of God is a great theological truth, a great truth about God, but it, it makes all the difference in your day-to-day life, whether you believe it or don't believe it. Show it to you from, turn with me, from 1 Thess 5 to the Old Testament to a guy named Job. Job. It's before Psalms in your Bible, a little bit before, halfway through. If you're new to the Bible, you, it would seem right to call him Job, but we call him Job. Seriously, I got, met a guy one time, he was like... What's with this guy Job in the Bible? And I was thinking, who is he talking about? Job, Job, Job. Oh, of course, Job. Yeah, we ought to call him Job, actually. But we call him Job. Here's what we learn about Job. Chapter 1, first, first three verses. He, he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So big family, loved God, feared God, didn't do evil. And he was rich. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. So he had it all. Big family, great family, godly guy. He was well-rounded. He had it all. He would be the envy of most folks. So that's who Job is. Having heard what, or who Job is, we then get to listen into a conversation that happens in heaven. And it begins like this. Does Job fear God for nothing? You know who says that? Satan looks at Job and he goes, does, does Job fear God for nothing? Or does he have reason to fear God and to live a blameless life. Satan says, 
Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So, I mean, you you can think it's great that he loves you, but of course he loves you. You're like his sugar daddy. He has given you everything. Your life is good. When it comes to Job's plate, it's piled high with good stuff. He's got everything on his plate that you'd want on your plate and lots of it. Of course he loves you. Who wouldn't love a person who brought them that plate? I love God. Look at it. He's awesome. God's great. Let's praise the Lord. In other words, Satan says, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He'll surely curse you to his face. In other words, start taking some of that stuff off his plate. We'll see the real joke. And what God says because he is sovereign, Satan's not. He goes, go for it. Wipe his, plate, wipe his plate clean. You just can't touch him. You can take all the stuff. You can even take the daughters. And you can take the sons. Now, has that happened to any of us? None of us have experienced loss. Like the guy whose plate was filled full with everything that we would call good and then gets wiped completely clean. Literally, his children are killed and all of his stuff taken from him. It's he and his wife left. The real Job is going to be revealed. Here's the real Job. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and say it out loud. And you got to circle that in your Bible. I mean, who really does that? Who gets all the good stuff taken off their plate and falls down and worships God? Nobody does that. We do what, what Satan predicted Job would do. We get ugly, we get demanding, we shake our fist at God. We complain, we go, hey, what about the good stuff? Job worshiping, and here was his song. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Folks, can you look up here for a moment? How many times have you said, oh, bless God, when he delivered you a full plate? And how many of you have, when he has taken some good stuff off your plate, have you went, I worship you, God. Bless the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you in it. (laughs) What, What did Job believe in? The sovereign rule of God. He believed the Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Watch this. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, don't don't get lost here. So many go, well, yeah, he didn't blame God because it wasn't God's fault. Whoa. Who is sovereign? Who is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth? God is It may have been delivered by Satan's hand, 
but it came from God's kitchen. God's the one who allowed it to happen. So it's not that he didn't blame God because, well, it wasn't God's fault. He didn't blame God because it was God's right. It's his right. He's sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. He can choose to give you a plate full of good or he can give you a plate full of hard or he can take the good that he did give you and take it off. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To which Satan goes, well, the dude loves himself more than I realized. Yeah, I mean, his kids are gone. Stuff's gone. He didn't curse you. That's because we didn't touch him. Satan says, but put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. Make him hurt like him really himself hurt. He'll curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Now you notice authority, that sovereign rule there? How did Satan get the power? Only delegated to him by God and with parameters. Go for it, but you can't kill him. Then Satan went forth, went out from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I mean, he didn't just touch him. He didn't just give him a pimple. He covered him head to toe with boils that hurt so bad he literally broke pottery and used it to scrape his flesh like you've had a mosquito bite and used your fingernails and rubbed yourself raw because it's so bad. He's not using his fingernails. He's using pottery on boils and he's just trying to find any relief possible. His wife watches him scraping his body in absolute torment. And she says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I mean, look at what he's done to you. We always thought he was so good. Just curse God and die. Do what other people do. When life was good, they go to church. When life goes bad, they just bail. Could never trust a God who would do something like that. That's what the thought is. And Job's response to his wife, curse God and die, is priceless. You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Now, I don't usually recommend this in marriage counseling. (laughs) But he calls a spade a spade here. He goes, woman, you sound like a fool. Why? Because the fool says in their heart, there is no God. There is no sovereign one. And Job goes, shall we indeed accept good from God and then not accept Adversity? Do we only get to say, God, I'll take the good stuff. Don't give me any of that adversity stuff. Should we say, bless the Lord for this, but curse God for this? And all this, Job didn't sin with his lips. Pretty challenging stuff. He didn't curse God. He blessed the Lord. 
You see, there is a, a fundamental conviction that I would invite to write onto the imprint of your heart that nothing touches me because I believe in the sovereignty of God. Nothing touches me that has not passed through the loving hands of my heavenly Father. See, it's, it's what we believe about God and what we don't believe about God that determines what we give thanks for and what we don't give thanks for, right? If I believe that genuinely God is sovereign, then I can recognize that nothing enters my life, nothing gets served up in my life that somehow did not pass through God's loving hands. Do you believe that? When we believe it, how do you know it? In everything, give thanks. For everything, give thanks. It's the evidence that we believe in the sovereignty of God. Nothing touches me. That, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean, oh, it all seems good, it all looks good, it all feels good, or it even is in itself good. Or that I like it. Or that I wanted it. No, I'm not saying any of those things. I don't play mind games with myself. I call it for what it is. And then I name it for what it is as well. Something that is in my life that God has set in front of me according to his loving hands. If it's in your life, it came from God's kitchen. It may have been delivered by ruthless, cruel hands, but it came from God's kitchen. Second truth. If I'm going to in everything and forever give everything give thanks is an expression that I believe in the good purposes of God. And as you write that down, understand what we're saying. As you write down that the good purposes of God is absolutely essential because if you have a sovereign ruler who is not good, that could be horrible and ugly and devastating, destructive. But when you marry sovereignty with goodness, now I have a heavenly father I can trust. Because I don't understand it. And I look across here, and I know some of your stories. I know some of the specific things that God has served up in your life that you would go, only by faith that I say thank you. But I believe your purposes are good. Thank you. Regarding the good purposes of God, Jesus gives an analogy in the night that he's arrested and then the next day crucified. He's with his disciples. He's 
eating with them what we refer to as the Last Supper, and he gives them this analogy. I'm the vine, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now, vine dresser simply means he's the one who's responsible to make sure all the branches are as fruitful in the vineyard as Paul. He's responsible for the quality of the vineyard, the fruit in it. So that's the father. Every branch in me. Now, this is an analogy. So the branch that is in Jesus is the believer. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So there was no fruit. There was fruit. And now there's more fruit. You're already clean because of the word that I've, which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, there is so much in those five verses that we could talk about. But I want to focus in on one specific. But here's the background. What we just read reveals that by this analogy, in every vineyard, there are four types of branches. And in the same way, in every congregation, there are four types of believers. There are branches who are believers, some who have no fruit, some who have fruit, some who have more fruit, and some who have, what was the fourth in verse five? Much fruit. Just like the branch, there are believers who have no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Would the no fruit people please stand up? No, I'm just just joking. (laughs) What? (laughs) Hey, but there is a branch that doesn't bear fruit. And what's the point of the vine dresser? What's his goal? To take no fruit branches that they would bear fruit and fruit branches that they would bear more fruit and more fruit branches that they would bear much fruit. So how does God work in that? Well, to the no fruit branches, we learn in the New Testament that God disciplines his children to bring about righteousness in their life because the fruit is an analogy for the character of God and the work of God done through the believer. So when you act more like Jesus and when you do what Jesus would do, when he does that through you, that's fruit. When that's not true, when you're living in disobedience and you don't look like Jesus, you don't sound like Jesus and you don't do what Jesus does, but you're in him, The scripture says he disciplines you, not to punish you, but to bring you, the discipline is to bring you to a place of your intended response is repentance, so that instead of being a fruitless branch, you would be a branch that bears fruit. You see that? The discipline of God is the good gift of God to bring you from no fruit to fruit. But what does he do to the believer who is 
fruitful that they might bear more fruit. What did it say? Verse 2. What was the word? Not discipline, but he prunes. You ever prune something or see something prune? So you got all that beautiful and then you start chopping away at it. Just the whole idea of chopping and cutting communicates. Pruning is painful. It hurts. It's hard. But it's not discipline. It's not for disobedience. It's God working in the obedient believer to make him even more fruitful. And then verse 5, to go from more fruit to much fruit is to understand that he abides in us, that the Spirit of God, God himself dwells within us, and as we abide in him, as he abides in us, we bear much fruit. Now, again, they can take a whole sermon, I have many times, to unpack just that line for. Abiding in him as he abides in us so that we would bear much fruit. But we don't have time for that. What we're talking about this morning right now is when God serves up pruning, not discipline. It can often feel the same because discipline hurts and pruning hurts. But discipline is because of disobedience and pruning is because of obedience. But we tend to think if something's hard in our life, it's because we've done something wrong. Right? Oh, my. I talk to unbelievers all the time that that's their basic mentality, and oftentimes church people keep that same mentality. Oh, man, life's good. You must be living right. Come on, you never heard somebody say that? Man, you must be living right. Because good stuff happens to people who live right. And then... My dock gets taken away two years in a row in a hurricane. And my neighbor goes, dude, you're the pastor. I thought you'd be living right. (laughs) God was messing with his theology with the use of my dock. I'd been pleased if he would have used something else. But you get served up stuff that you don't like. And if there's pain in your heart, you ought to ask. If there's pain in life, you ought to ask, Lord, is there disobedience that you're disciplining here? And if there's not, what's he doing? Say it. What's he doing? He's pruning. And it hurts. It's hard. You wish it'd stop. But what do you know? What do you know he's doing? Making me more fruitful. So what's my response? First Thess 5, 16. Rejoice always. First Thess 5, 18. In everything give thanks. Ephesians 5, 20. For everything give thanks. See, when it's the pruning work of God in your life, our intended response that we would rejoice always and give thanks in all things. 
Now, again, I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but you see what happens when God prunes us and we refuse to give thanks. Now we are not bearing fruit and we're inviting the discipline of God. But that's, that's a whole nother message. But you see how it works together. Which leads me to the conviction. Second, first, nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my loving heavenly Father. Second conviction, everything that does touch me, because it's passed through his loving hands, everything that is placed on my plate, it's not only from his hands, it's divinely designed to make me a more fruitful servant of God. He is the vine dresser. He is always working in the life of the believer to make us more like Jesus, to use us more like Jesus. That's always what he's doing, whether it's discipline, whether it's pruning. He is always growing us to be more fruitful. Everything. So can I make a confession to you? I've been able to look back to lots of things over the years and said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that. In it, thank you. But there's been something on my plate that I can't tell you specifics about, but there's been something on my plate that I have griped repeatedly about to the Lord. I've gone, take that back. I've said, Lord, this is not, this was not the plan. This was not the way it was supposed to be. And I don't know how this happens. But very specifically, even though I taught it Thursday night, very specifically this morning in my prayer before first hour, Doug, you're going to give me thanks for that? Not just accept it. You know. All right, Lord. I endure. That's as far as I had honestly gotten. But to look at it and go, thank you for it, Lord. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I want. It's not what I wish. It's not what we'd worked for. But thank you, Lord. You're growing me. I wish you'd do something else. But this is from your kitchen. You're sovereign. Anything on your plate? So I can genuinely say right now, anything on your plate that you're going, well, I'm enduring. Uh, But that you would, by faith, say, thank you for it, Lord. I know this. I've known this. But to have my heart set free from the angst and the frustration 
and sometimes the anger that wells up. And to go, thank you, Lord. Thank you for it. Thank you in it. For as long as it lasts, thank you for it. Thank you in it. I'll need to give myself this sermon again tomorrow morning. Seriously. Because I know what it is to have that stuff well up in you and want to shake your fist and be angry. Nothing and everything. We say don't use absolutes. But I say use absolutes with a sovereign God. Nothing touches you, does not pass through his hands, and everything that has, he's working for your good. He's working for my good. So, another biblical example. End of Genesis a 40 something year old Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, for the in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, let me unpack that for you. Joseph's about 40 here, and the you he is speaking to are his brothers. Because his brothers and the evil against him was probably as a late teenager, they hated him so badly, they threw him in a pit to let him die and then concluded, that's not good enough evil. That's not bad enough evil. That's too good for that twerp to just let him die. And they drag him out of a pit and they sell him to a pass-bying caravan so that he will spend all of his days as a slave in Egypt. And then they fake his death and they take back some bloody garments and say, Dad, we're sorry, but your, your favorite brother, taken out by a wild animal. Twenty-five years later, don't miss that, 25 years later. Some of you waiting on the Lord to uh, change out the plate, to somehow turn the broccoli into a good, something good. <laughs> 25 years later, Joseph goes, you know, you thought you were getting me when you sold me into slavery. But God, he's bigger than you. And he took that stuff that you meant to harm me and to get me, and he actually worked it for good. Now, what's the good that Joseph's talking about? Well, the good that he's talking about is there was a famine in that portion of the world, and by God's sovereignty, Joseph had been part of preparing for this famine and his brothers were now getting, had come to Egypt to get 
from all people him, though they would have never in their wildest imagination been him, think it'd be him, to get food from him. And they still, when they get food from him, they still don't know it's him. He finally reveals, hey, I'm the twerp you tried to kill. No, that you did worse than kill. And they're like, oh no, our number is up. They're sure that he's going to whack them. And he goes, no. Why would I whack you? Never whack you. Hey, what you did, what you did was evil. But it came from God's kitchen. And he was actually using it for great good. Because the story of Joseph goes like this. If Joseph is not sold into slavery by his brothers, he never goes to Egypt. And if he never goes to Egypt, then he doesn't serve in the house of Potiphar who bought him to be a slave. And if he doesn't serve in the house of Potiphar, then he is never falsely accused of rape. Oh, we're going, what? what? You ever thought, oh Lord, ah, man, this is not good, but, but I'm believing you. It's going to be for good. And then you get more of the junk. Doesn't get better. Oh man, but I'm sl- oh now I'm falsely accused of rape. And if he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, then he never is sent to prison. This is going well. His brothers are going, this is better than we could have ever imagined. Not a slave, a falsely accused rapist rotting in prison. Yes. But if he's never sent to prison, then he never has the opportunity to interpret the dream of a servant of Pharaoh. If he doesn't interpret that dream, then the servant can never tell Pharaoh about Joseph. Never mind, it was a couple years later after you forgot about him. If the man never tells Pharaoh about Joseph, then Joseph never meets Pharaoh and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And if he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's dream, then Joseph never becomes second in command of Egypt. There's a day for you. He is rotting and forgotten in prison one day for a rape he didn't commit. And in one day, that gets removed and then he's bathed, cleanly shaven, the text says. That was an important deal. Cleanly shaven with a ring on his finger from the Pharaoh that says... Everybody except me answers to you. Well, bless God. (laughs) Would have you waited till then? You waiting to give thanks to when you go, ah, I see. Well, thank you, Jesus. That's normal. We usually wait till God works it out. If he's never become second in command of Egypt, he never becomes 
he doesn't get to save many lives by preparing for the coming famine. And if he doesn't prepare for the coming famine, then his brothers never have reason to make a trip to Egypt. And if the brothers don't come to Egypt, then he never has the chance to say to them, what? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Nothing and everything, folks. You believe God is sovereign. You believe his purposes are good. Then you believe nothing touches you that has not passed through his hands and everything that does is intended to make you a more fruitful servant. And folks, look, this right here, this is small potatoes compared to another great work of God of taking evil for the saving of many lives. The big potatoes one is, we're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. They will mean every sort of evil against me, Jesus says. And what? And three days later, he will rise again. You understand that the cross is the ultimate expression that what is delivered often with evil hands came from God's kitchen for the work of great good. See, most of you in here and over in north, most of you, you've been saved because of the greatest evil ever perpetrated. The cross is the ultimate reminder that God works for good. You ever given thanks for the cross? You ever seen the irony that you would give thanks for the cross but then not give thanks for the, for the little stuff on your plate? See, the cross is the, the ultimate reminder. So, as the foundation for giving thanks in all things, I'm going to invite the men to come forward and to pass the elements of the Lord's Supper that remind us of the cross, the broken bread, the reminder of, of the body of Christ, the cup, the reminder of the blood of Christ. Look up here, if you would, as the men pass. Here's what the Father presented to Jesus. Right? You know what Jesus said in John 12? My soul's troubled. But what would I say in this hour? Father, deliver me? But this is, this is why I came. Father, glorify your name. 
as the elements are being passed as the reminder of God's goodness. I want to tell you one last story, story of another brother. Not one in the Bible, but the brother of Matt Collins who leads us in worship. You may not know this, but Matt has an older brother named Bo who is six years older than Matt. But for the last five years, Bo has endured three bone marrow transplants. Painful, painful. But in spite of three bone marrow transplants, has just been given only weeks to live. So that's what's being served in front of Matt right now. So I want you to not listen to a song, but for Matt to do what Job did, to worship in words that he has written himself in worship of God in the midst of the heart. It's the response the message of the cross. When my days are gripped with doubt and your truth keeps slipping away God I know you're for me but so hard to trust in the pain My hopes come burning down. Help me see your hands in the flame, forging a new and truer trust in its place. Lord, I come weary and broken. Lord, I come to be mended in faith. There is healing in your name. I come broken, oh so broken, but held in your grace. gentleness and love you turn pride to poverty and all of my striving revealing my desperate need Lord remind me of your son and fear is all that I feel his arms held open, his body broken for me. Lord, I come weary and broken. Lord, I come to be mended in faith. There is Free.
specifically right now say thank you for it just bow your head and whatever it is that's on your plate right now or maybe it's been in your past that you've never had the faith to say thank you for it would you release your heart to trust in his goodness to believe in his love for it and thank you minute and would you declare in worship as well this I am choosing to trust you choosing to rest in your love in everything and for everything, give thanks. So we take the elements now, thankful in and for everything. Let's take together. Would you stand and let's worship. Though the tears may fall, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. Though my heart may fail, my song will rise, my song will rise to you. While there's breath in my lungs, I will praise you, Lord. In the dead of night, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. When the waters rise, I'll lift my eyes, I'll lift my eyes to you. While there's hope in this heart, Can I feel your hand in mine? Let faith arise to you. God. 
that's for some of you a very much a declaration of faith but would you determine with me not to wait to see the good stuff on the plate to say thank you for it Lord now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls us, and he also will bring it to pass. God bless.